industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. This is Toxic History. Dr. Sarah Weiss is a medical toxicologist who's currently practicing in Reading, Pennsylvania, and is the medical director of the toxicology service there. Her undergraduate education at Hampshire College fueled her ongoing desire for learning and discovery, and she returned to her home city of Philadelphia to attend Drexel University College of Medicine. She then went on to emergency medicine residency at Stony Brook University Hospital in New York State and toxicology fellowship at Einstein Healthcare Network. Thank you so much, Dr. Blumenberg. I really appreciate that. So although psychedelics grow in nearly every climate on the planet, there is evidence of their ancient use on every continent. I want to explore the context of mid 20th century synthetic psychedelic renaissance, connecting ancient history with the modern psychedelic world. This means going back all the way to the 15th century. This is when people who think like me and probably you, like the Spanish and Portuguese, met people who thought very, very differently, the indigenous people of North, Central, and South Americas. So just for the little history lesson, this is what the Iberian Peninsula, which is now modern day Spain and Portugal, looked like in the 15th century. You had the Kingdom of Portugal over here on the west, Castile and Leon in the center, and then Aragon on the east with Granada, in the south. In 1469, Isabella I of Castile and Leon married Ferdinand II of Aragon, which united Spain under the name Hispania. In 1477, they started asking a few questions, and we'll come back to that. And in 1482 to 1492, the kingdoms of Portugal, Castile and Leon, and Aragon ended the Reconquista expelling the Nazareth dynasty from the Iberian Peninsula and retaking Granada, now to take, or probably Grenada, to take the entire Iberian Peninsula. So the king of Aragon comes along and says, hmm, the Ottoman Empire controls nearly all the passage from Western Europe to the East. And this is going to sound very, very familiar to anyone who grew up and took public school in America. So the king queen thought what is now Spain only founded maybe a decade before to seek a new route by going west, and they hired this guy. And he thought, I definitely know what the world looks like, and it looks like this. This is a map from 1492 of the known world with Spain and Portugal over here. This is the map of Africa. This is the Arabian Peninsula here and the Middle East. And then over here was India. Instead, he found this and this. This is what Mesoamerica looked like before Columbus, dominated largely by the Aztec Empire with a number of strong independent kingdoms and territories surrounding. This image is actually an original work by a Wikipedia contributor that has extensive citations, and it is probably the most beautiful map of the period that I was able to find in my searching. This red here is the Aztec Empire. This is the Mexico Valley around here. Here's a little bit more. And this is where the Maya were at that time. They also found people with thousands of years of history who'd been living in that land. This is a traditional Huicol woman with a large peyote bundle. Unfortunately, about 20 years later, this guy showed up 
and he brought a bunch of missionaries with him. This is a painting of Hernan Cortez fighting the Aztecs. One of those missionaries was Bernardino de Sahaguin, who is sometimes regarded as the father of ethnography and anthropology for writing extensively about the practices of the Aztec and Nahua people. And I apologize for uh, butchering these things. I don't speak Nahua. He wrote a very large <laughs> compendium of the Historia General de las Cosas de Nueva España, aka the Florentine Codex, that was written in two languages. It was written in both Nahua and Spanish. He wrote of some of the practices, there are some mushrooms in this land that are called tionanactal. They grow under the hay in the fields or moorlands. They are round, they have a raised foot, thin and round. When eaten, they have a bad taste. They hurt the throat and make you drunk. They are medicinal against fevers and gout. Eat two or three only. Those who eat them see visions and feel sick in their hearts. Those who eat many of them provoke lust, and even if they are few. And this was his drawing of that. We also have records of other people engaging and using these mushrooms, most notably mushroom stones from the Maya. This is actually from the U.S. Forestry Service has this photo of Mayan mushroom stones. He was a talented artist. I think these are pretty good. On the left, that looks an awful lot like a Datura to me. And on the right, he actually labeled this as peyotil. Though hallucinogens grow all, all over the world naturally, it makes sense that the best documented indigenous use in the Americas was among the Aztec and the Maya. They had a culture more relatable to colonists than other indigenous peoples that included writing, many permanent buildings and monuments, and similar social hierarchies, including castes, fiefdoms, and nobility. Unfortunately, at the same time, I mentioned that Spain was asking some questions. And by questions, I mean inquisitions. Although the Mexican Inquisition started nearly 100 years later than the Spanish Inquisition, and was com comparatively more lenient with native people practicing their religion than with Jews and Muslims, the Inquisition effectively silenced all documented use of hallucinogens for nearly 300 years. In 1880, though, there was a sudden resurgence of hallucinogen use. Peyote use spread across the American Southwest as part of what became known at the time as the peyote cult. A likely origin is from contact with indigenous Mexicans, as often occurred in the late 19th century. This photo of a peyote ceremony was taken by James Mooney in 1882. Peyote ceremonies later became part of the Native American church, protecting them from prohibition efforts in the early 20th century. So why James Mooney? How did he get that photo? In 1891, James Mooney was the first white man known to participate in a peyote ceremony while living with the Kiowa and Comanche. In the morning after the meeting, the roadman, who was the master of ceremonies, asked him to, quote, go back and tell the whites that the Indians have a religion of their own that they love. He wrote, 
The Indians regard the mezcal or peyote as a panacea in medicine, a source of inspiration and the key which opens to them all the glories of another world. With the rising prohibition movement, Mooney went on to advocate legally for the new Native American church founded in 1918 to protect their religious use of peyote. With the introduction of peyote very deliberately to white populations, physicians and psychiatrists and chemists became very, very interested in it and called it a new medicine or an artificial paradise. They also often experimented on themselves. They were unable to identify and purify the active compounds for a handful of years, but they certainly knew its effect. Ellis wrote beautifully about his personal experience with peyote. The first symptom observed during the afternoon was a certain consciousness of energy and intellectual power. This passed off, and about an hour after the final dose, I felt faint and unsteady. The pulse was low, and I found it pleasanter to lie down. The appearance of visions with closed eyes was very gradual. At first, there was merely a vague play of light and shade, and they became distinct, but still indescribable, mostly a vast field of golden jewels studded with red and green stones, ever-changing. I was further impressed, not only by the brilliance, delicacy, and variety of the colors, but even more by their lovely and various texture, fibrous, woven, polished, glowing, dull, veined, semi-transparent. It was a Saturnalia of the specific senses and chiefly an orgy of visions. Ah, to be a chemist physician in 1898. Another physician, Mitchell, also experimented with the, with the drug. And he said, I have said enough to show the great interest of this drug for physicians and psychologists. I predict a perilous reign of the mezcal habit when this agent becomes attainable. He was absolutely right. The turn of the 20th century became alight with the use of peyote, psilocybin mushrooms, and cocaine. Mescaline was added to the Park Davis catalog without any controls. Although MDMA was first synthesized in 1912, it was not used in psychotherapy for nearly half a century later. The active compound in peyote, mescaline, was first isolated in 1896. Now here's where things get really weird. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Alistair Crowley wrote the Book of the Law in 1904. In 1914, he experienced pure mescaline at the Park Davis factory in Detroit. In his 1929 confessions, Crowley wrote, we can produce fantastic dreams by hashish, hallucinations of color by anhelonium lueniae, then the scientific name for peyote, we can even make him see stars by the use of a sandbag. Why then should we not be able to devise some pharmaceutical, electrical, or surgical method of inducing samadhi, create genius as imply as we do other kinds of specific excitement? Morphine makes men holy and happy in a negative way. Why should there not be some drug which will produce the positive equivalent? Interestingly, in that very same year, John Whiteside Parsons was born. Rarely found in history books, Jack Parsons may have been one of the most important figures in modern rocketry. 
He experimented with small rockets starting at the age of 12, but at the same age, he performed a ritual trying to summon the devil. By 20, he was experimenting in rocketry at Caltech, despite not being enrolled in any programs there, nor being an employee or holding any advanced degree. And by 25, he had converted to Aleister Crowley's religion, Thelema. Parsons was charismatic and talented. Despite holding no advanced degrees, he secured government funding during World War II and founded the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He was also a heavy drug user. During Thelema ceremonies and on his own, he would indulge in all manner of psychedelic exploration. In a poem that he wrote for one of his periodicals, he wrote, I hight Don Quixote. I live on peyote, marijuana, morphine, and cocaine. I never knew sadness, but only a madness that burns at the heart and the brain. Unfortunately for Jack, during one of his experiments, and we know not whether he was intoxicated or not, in 1952, he died in an explosion in his laboratory. But his company, Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech, became a part of NASA only six years later. JPL engineers designed and operated the Ranger and Surveyor missions that ultimately explored the moon. On the dark side of the moon, there's a crater called Parsons. Thank you very much. And here are my references. And if you have any additional interest in reading about how sub mind-altering substances have affected uh, our historical development, there's a wonderful book called High Society by Mike Jay. It's a nice quick read and has been one of my favorites in preparing for this talk. I promise you didn't pay me.